I wanted to show you a picture of an experiment my son and I did. Uh, I had found a crazy good deal on some stone veneer on Craigslist. I think I've mentioned that in a sermon before. I was pretty excited about it. Uh, I've always wanted to try working with stone. Uh, It just seemed really expensive, which it usually is, and like a lot of work, which it was. Uh, Reading articles, watching YouTube videos, moving the stone like three times at least, laying out the stone, uh, trying to figure out how to make the consistency of the mortar right, which is supposed to be like mashed potatoes apparently. But just a side note, I don't like my mashed potatoes as soupy as the mortar needs to be. Anyway, I don't know how they, uh, how they figured that out. But, but getting the whole timing right also before it all sets and you have to redo it. Um, I'd like to think that it wouldn't have happened if it weren't for love. Uh, now, I love my son, John. Absolutely, this was a project that we got to do together. Uh, I mostly loved doing the project, and I mostly loved learning how to do uh, this. So, again, in my mind, it really did take love uh, to build this. What we'll find in the passage that we're studying today is that God is building something. He is building a forever house, and it does take love to build it. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, uh, going into chapter 2, verse 10 today. We'll have the words on the screen, but if you would prefer to follow along in your Bible, you can do that as well. And here is what Peter has to say to us this morning. And starting in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, Purification comes in two forms in Christianity. There is a purification that comes from initial faith in Jesus Christ, salvation, conversion. And there's also a purification that comes from uh, what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. It's the fancy word for it is sanctification, but it's it's a lifelong process of becoming more and more like Jesus. Now, we, we think it's, it's more likely, perhaps, we want to hold that loosely, but it's more likely that Peter is referring to that first, that initial response to the good news about Jesus Christ, uh, because the language seems to indicate that this has already happened, and he mentions born again, which is definitely conversion and salvation language. Regardless, for readers today, we're called to both. We're called to respond to the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and to obey him for the rest of our lives. And a lot of times that can be seen through the way that we love others. This is a spiritual obedience. It deals with our soul. It's not just outward actions. And it works itself out in community. Peter mentions a couple of terms Uh, from Greek words, uh, for love. He mentions Philadelphia and agapao. 
Philadelphia sounds a lot like the city of brotherly love, which if you ever watch Jim Gaffigan, uh, he says they mean it sarcastically. Um, but this is, this is the love for other Christians, brotherly love and sisterly love. All right, it also mentions agapao, which uh, maybe you've heard of it more as agape love, more of this widespread, like unconditional type of love for all. And believers are called to that as well. You see, there's a, there's a direct application of God's work to our work. And God's work is rebirth. That is, that is something only he can do. Our work, and again, I, I don't want to distinguish this so much because our work is also empowered by God and the Holy Spirit to be able to love. But our work is to love. We get to participate with God in that. And again, I don't mean to distinguish the two and say God isn't involved in that. But we're prepared to love through our obedience. Right? Uh, Peter mentions this purification. It rids us of things that won't help us. Maybe this is the wrong way to think about it, but if you think about us as producing a product that is love, an impurity is going to limit the value. If you have a, a gorgeous diamond ring except it has cloudiness or one of the other four or five C's, whatever it is, it's an impurity, right? And it lessens its value. And so when we have impurities in our life, it can limit our ability to love. Peter focuses on, on the word of God. Uh, quoting from verses in Isaiah that emphasize the fleeting nature of our life on earth. So that's fleeting, and yet he stands firm about the word of God being living and abiding. The gospel produces life, and that spiritual life never ceases, even though our physical bodies will die. One commentator said, back to this whole love thing, that Christians are to love each other because they're brought into a fellowship that continues to grow eternally. In other words, Christians are supposed to love other Christians because we have to get to for the rest of all eternity. So we may as well start now. And Christians are to love all to bring them into that fellowship and community. Every Christian has had the good news preached to them in some form or another. How did the good news come to you? Now go, and, go and do likewise. Maybe somebody gave you a Bible and that's what connected you to the gospel. Well, go and give Bibles to people. Get the word of God into other people's hands. Maybe it was an invitation to church. Go and invite people to church or go with them. I don't care if it's here or somewhere else, somewhere that preaches the gospel. Take them. Maybe it was through a community group or a small group where you got to interact with Christians and figured out what that life looked like. Well, go start a community group. Invite people into a community group. Maybe it was a guy wearing a sandwich board saying the end is near on a street corner. Well, go and 
And give some Bibles to people. How about that? Well, as we keep, as we keep going in chapter 2, uh, Peter says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The so seems to pick up from loving one another. And this is an interesting list. These are all things that affect the ability to love one another. You might think to yourself, well, so does murder. So why, like, why isn't that included? Why these things? And if it were meant to be a totally comprehensive list, it definitely would include murder. What I find fascinating about this list is that these seem to be, for the most part, things that can be hidden more easily. And because maybe they're a little easier to hide, a little harder to recognize in other people and maybe even in ourselves, we might be a little bit more tolerant of them. And yet these are things that can be as devastating to relationships as anything else. They rip relationships apart. And that's what the church is supposed to be. I love Peter's visuals uh, as, as he writes. Uh, they're, they're wonderful. We, we talk about infants and their craving for milk. Infants have no idea about the mechanics of milk and growth. They just know they're hungry and milk satisfies. That's it. It's so simple. I think sometimes Christians can get into all sorts of debates about how a Christian grows and lose sight of actually what satisfies. Peter points back to the word of God. He talks about pure spiritual milk, but I can't think that it's anything other than the word of God and its expression in Christian community. This food metaphor is interesting. Now, we've all been hungry. We've all tasted good things. We've all experienced the hunger as an infant, even though we don't remember it. And I'm sure all of us have had the experience of being around a newborn baby who is desiring milk. Kind of rude about it. <laughs> right? They, they don't care if they wake you up. They just know that that is the most important thing in their life. And I love how Peter uh, uses these universal experiences to connect with us about the priorities in life. I feel like sometimes we treat God's word less like milk and more like kale. (laughs) Where you're like, yeah, I know some people like it. I know it's good for me, but it tastes less like cheesecake than I'd like. Right? Give me, give me something that tastes like that, and I would read it and live it every day. And yet, that's what our craving should be. We should long for that growth and that spiritual nourishment. If you've tasted salvation, then you've tasted that the Lord is good. If you've tasted growth, you've tasted that the Lord is good. Christians have salvation because they were born again. But Peter says, grow into it. Right? Grow up into 
salvation. And unlike a baby, we don't grow out of our need for milk. We constantly need God's word in our life. Peter transitions to another word picture. I like this one too. Uh, in, in verse four, he says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Christ is referred to here as a living stone. It might not be a coincidence that Peter, whose original name was Simon, had his name changed by Jesus to Petros, the rock, the original rock. Sorry, Duane. It might not be a coincidence that he uses a stone in his writing. Jesus is a living stone, not was, is a living stone. Rejected by men. Jews were the first ones that had an opportunity to embrace Jesus. But many instead rejected him. And in some ways, I think many of the Jews, especially the religious leaders of the day, based on the record we have of scripture, had had already built the house. They They were just waiting for the right cornerstone to come and fit into what they had already built with them on top. But that's not how you built. But here's Jesus coming on the scene and he doesn't match their expectations. Jews were expecting someone with the nice clean lines of what they wanted to build. Sure, they wanted a spiritual act of, uh, aspect of the Messiah, of course. They expected him to be a prophet and to teach God's word, but it seemed like they had something else in mind. They wanted someone who would be strong in their way and save them from Rome. And so Jesus, the living stone, comes and he shatters their expectation of what the Messiah was and the timing. He didn't fit according to many men. But he was perfect. And God is a master builder. He has no problem fitting the rest of us around Christ. The fact is, we need some chiseling, we need reshaping. There's a reason that my son and I put a bookcase in front of the first section that we did on this because we tried to just use everything as it was 
Now, eventually, I ended up buying a cutting wheel, and that made things a lot simpler because you could get everything right. God loves us enough to cut away things from our life that don't help us. Things like deceit and slander and malice, like Peter mentioned earlier. And I think it's interesting, our fellowship also results in being reshaped. These rocks that you grabbed on your way in, they're smooth, aren't they? And why is that? Because they've been bumping into each other. That's what happens when we fellowship with one another. We rub off some of the, some of the harder edges. Now we need this. Jesus doesn't. And what I mean by that is we live in a culture where not accepting one aspect of someone is viewed as a total rejection of someone. Now, in our relationships, I firmly believe it's possible to love someone and disagree with their views or decisions. Right? If I disagree with you, I'm not necessarily playing God with you because I'm appealing to someone else, God, and their moral authority. But if we try to do that with Jesus, if we look at Jesus and say, well, if we just took this little bit off here, and if we just chiseled this away, and if we just made you more like what I want, if I just made Jesus to fit in my life, then we are playing God. We're trying to conform Jesus to our view and our life, and we're rejecting his authority. It's not just about us as individuals, and that's one of the themes throughout this whole passage is fellowship and community. Look at the things that Peter calls Christians. He calls them a building and a priesthood. Right? One thing, many individuals. The Jews had a priestly line that, uh, I guess for lack of a better description, had more direct access to God in, in the temple. And Christ's death obliterated that distinction and that, that special role. Where, where once priests needed to sacrifice blood offerings for the sins of the people... Christ offered one perfect blood sacrifice, his life and his body, and bestowed upon Christians the role of priest. And as priests, Christians still offer sacrifices, but not in the same way. We don't do animal sacrifices anymore. So if your community group leader tells you to bring a goat to the next community group, we need to know about that right away, okay? But we don't, we don't offer animal sacrifices anymore. We don't need to. What we need to do instead is to offer ourselves. Time, talent, treasure. We offer our lives as a living sacrifice 
to God. And we offer ourselves to the chiseling of the rough edges away from God and the smoothing from fellowship with others. Now, Peter roots this all in Scripture, referencing uh, verses in Isaiah that were a message to part of Israel, judging them for their disobedience and unbelief. This Zion reference grounds us in Israel's history. This shouldn't be divorced from the historical context. God initially built the church on the foundation of his relationship with Israel. And so scripture is referring to that originally. And yet the church is very much in mind from Peter's perspective as he's writing primarily to non-Jews. And we continue to see an Israel first and the church grafted in next, expanded uh, throughout much of scripture. And while Zion grounds us in Israel's history, I think there's also a sense in which it should cause us to look forward. In scripture, there are often some eternal connotations with this place or the concept of Zion where God is going to build his kingdom. Christianity is follow the leader. I'm not going to say it's a game. It's not a game, but it is follow the leader. So what happens to Jesus will happen to his followers. Now, in the context of 1 Peter, Jesus suffered and his followers should expect to suffer, but also if Jesus was resurrected and glorified and honor, his followers should expect resurrection and to be glorified and to be honored. And that's what we see at the end of this passage. He mentions shame that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And I I couldn't help but think about the context during which this was written. Again, suffering and persecution. And what would be what would be shameful? I think I think and this is not making fun of anyone. I want you to hear my heart. I think the shameful thing to get to the end of your life and look back and realize that you missed it. Maybe it's pursuing, and I'm not talking about just a sin or a mistake. I'm talking about a whole life trajectory of missing it. So giving your life to, quote unquote, the American dream, make lots of money, work yourself to death, while abandoning your family and not getting to enjoy it. At the end of life, that's shame. right? Pursuing all sorts of sensual exploits as the ultimate human adventure. Shame. Pursuing a worldview that says humans are actually really great. We just need to believe in ourselves. I love the optimism, but I hate that it's wrong and that it's so pervasive in our society. 
My friends, the only thing that will result in honor and glory that will not put you to shame, and again, that's an understatement, the way to achieve honor and glorification is pursuing Jesus Christ. That's it. And so as as we continue on, Peter says, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So instead of shame, believers receive honor. Why? Obedience to the word of God. And that means initially through a response to the gospel, as Peter seems to view salvation as obedience, and then, and then also obedience to the word of God, who is Christ, as John writes about, and to the written word. Now this original context here was a Davidic king that foreign nations rejected. Uh, from Peter's perspective, This is applied to Jewish religious leaders and also to anyone who rejects Jesus. Again, the Jewish leaders were looking for the Messiah and and Jesus kept putting himself in front of them saying, do you recognize me? And some did, but many didn't. And some do now, but still many don't now. Many were focused still on their concept of the Messiah and they were, they were picking up these pieces like they were clues to the Messiah instead of the shattered remnants of an inaccurate concept. Peter indicates that the reason why they disobeyed or why the reason that they stumbled rather was their disobedience. They saw Jesus as a tripping hazard instead of a savior because of sin. And this is, this is really difficult language. They disobeyed the word as unbelievers, whereas believers were enabled to be in obedience to the word. They were destined to do so, Peter says. Again, this is really difficult language, and I would humbly suggest that we can go down all sorts of rabbit trails and theological debates about, about this and, and ask questions that probably none of us are, are able to answer. How were they destined to disobey? Because God wanted them to disobey? because God destined them to disobey even though he didn't want them to, because they chose it? I don't know how to answer that question. It is a mystery to me. What I do know is that the Bible is full of examples of God's character, of his righteousness, of his justice, of his mercy, of his grace. And the Bible is full of examples of him inviting 
people to come to him. That's what I can tell you. He invites people through that hunger that can only be satisfied with faith in Christ. As we close up with these last two verses, Peter writes, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Our identity informs our actions. So being a people, being a wanted people comes with a responsibility. It comes with the responsibility of proclaiming the excellencies of God. Being God's. It means being adopted into a family where every kid can invite others in. And this transformation from being lost in darkness to being called out of it is a theme that really resonates with us. It inspires songs like we sung earlier, Amazing Grace, right? It was, was blind, but now I see. It's enlightenment, it's freedom, it's life. It's being delivered out of what we deserve because of our sin into this beautiful relationship with God. And once again, we see this this fellowship that undergirds the whole passage. Now you are God's people. If you're a Christian, you are a part of something, a fellowship, the church that is being built with you. And it's why it's so essential to love one another. Not only does it cement us together, but how does it make being God's people desirable if it looks like a giant cat fight from the outside? As this living temple is being built, I want you to picture what could set it back. Right? Picture, picture the malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy as stones pushing against each other, creating all sorts of cracks and fissures in this building that God is building. Now, don't get me wrong. God is building it. He's going to prevail. But we don't make, need to make his job more difficult. I would say that people hunger for something. Peter answers that it's spiritual growth in the context of the church. And if people look at the church and reject it, how are they going to grow? In rejecting the context of growth, they're rejecting a part of Christ. And we already talked about how well that works. The church is Christ's bride. It says elsewhere in scripture, and it's pretty difficult to have a relationship with someone if you're like, I like you, but I can't stand your bride. It's going to have a limited relationship. And I think we as the church need to do a better, need to be better about the image that we present. Or maybe that's part of the problem, is that sometimes we present an image and we don't have something solid behind it. 
I get it, we're broken people and we convey love to others in broken ways. But what's being built is this grand, beautiful, living thing. Every Christian has in common the love of God. And God demonstrated that most visibly through the sacrifice of his son Jesus on the cross. That's a cornerstone that has and will stand for all eternity. As a church, we have an opportunity to celebrate that sacrifice through the Lord's Supper or communion today. There's a table in the back with some prepackaged elements of bread and juice, bread that represents Jesus' body that was hung on a cross in our stead, and juice that represents the blood that was spilled to purchase our freedom and to appease justice. During the next two songs, I'd invite you, I'd invite believers to pick up a communion packet and and take that in your own timing. Take some time to confess sin, take some time to pray with your family or someone you came with, or just take some time to reflect before taking that individually. And if you'd humor me, there's just one more thing. I'd like to propose adding another element into today's worship. I would really love for this image to stick in our minds. The image of what God is building. He's building a holy temple with believers on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And so if you're comfortable, I'd love for you to just come up and and place your rocks up here so that we can have this visual reminder of what we are or can be a part of.